All right, I think this is part 53 in our study of law and gospel and reality. Let's see, how many total have we done so far? Let me look here. We've done 68 broadcasts on the subject of law and gospel. 53 have basically been done from, have been done from here. Words of talking about this, I feel like... What else can we do? But we still have a lot to try to figure out. So this morning, before we get to the thesis or we do anything else, I want you to write down the word better. The word better. And it may not make any sense, but if you've been following along, especially if you listened to the broadcast yesterday, you, you have an idea. The word better. Now, what, how do we define the word better? What's up, Robert? Pretty good. Better. How do we, I mean, everybody knows what it means, but how would you define it? That's okay. Use it in the definition. Just. It's above good. It's more than good. Excels, all right? The, def, the dictionary definition from Oxford is of a more excellent or effective type or quality. So of a more excellent or effective type of quality, something is more excellent than what it was. Here's this. Now it's better. It's more excellent. It's a better, uh, it's more excellent or it's a more effective or it has a better quality. Another definition, partly or fully recovered from illness, injury, or mental stress, right? So it can be better in a lot of different ways, Right? But it's a, an improvement. Something is better. So here's the question, and I know it'll be somewhat controversial, maybe not so much here, but it will definitely be for some people listening online. The goal of Christianity is salvation about making us better. What do you think? Is Christianity about making us better? more excellent, a better quality, better. Well, we've been, yeah, we've been kind of talking about it for about 68 hours, but, but I want to see if we really have this. Okay, I've got, Stacy said no. Sarah says no. Steve, Stephen says no, right? I think a lot of others are like, I don't want to answer. Okay, well, okay, well, so now we're going to go positionally or practically. Okay, that's a good question. Oh, that's true. Good point. Good point. That's a good point. Right. But within the evangelical mindset, within the evangelical mindset, within the well, most Christians you know, if you were to ask that question, they would really answer it. How would they answer it? Absolutely, when you get saved, you are to be better, a more excellent quality. Yeah, power. We get a better, we have better power. We have better this. We have better that. We have better understanding. We have, like, the, the, there is a mentality, even though Christians don't want to say it, but, the, but the, the mentality is, I became a Christian and now I am better, uh, especially in churches that do, that focus a lot on people giving their testimony. How, is the testi- how do testimonies work? Remember, there's a structure when you're supposed to give your testimony, right? First, you're supposed to tell everyone how bad you were, right? You came to an end of your self, and what was the answer? Jesus, and now you are better. Now you no longer Do a, you used to do this, now you no longer do this. You are better. I mean, I trust me, I know how that works because I was told over and over and over how to give my testimony, how, you know, where where to where to make it sad, where to do that. But this is the way it was supposed to work. How bad I was, now how good I am. And what made all the difference? Jesus. And so Jesus came to make me. Better, to make me better, to make me better. So whether we like it or not, Christians walking around thinking that we are 
But now we may say, no, 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 I don't really mean that. But yes, we do, right? Because we claim, just like in the, in the devotional, that we have a power that they don't have. We have an understanding that they don't have. We, we have the whole, well, we have all of, that makes us better, 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 better. And we say that, and then the world sometimes goes, and wait a minute, you're not that much, yeah, like you may be better in certain areas, so, so-called, but it becomes very subjective how you measure it. So did Christ come to make us better? Or did Christ come to save a people, declaring them to be perfect, not making them perfect, but declaring them to be perfect on the basis of what kind of righteousness? Imputed. Remember, that's the whole that's one of the things that drives me so crazy about people's complaints about Catholicism is they want to focus on just the most, to me, the things that are of the least significance, right? Well, I don't want some pope. I don't want some pope telling me what to do. I don't want to confess my sins to some priest. Like They just look at robes, popes, priests, and, and miss the whole reason for the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation wasn't about those things per se. Right? What was Luther's whole issue? Luther was preoccupied with what problem? His sin. Remember, he, was, he could not understand. Like, no matter how hard I try, he, he went to confession, went to confession. He was overwhelmed with the sense of his own guilt. And what did he look to for an answer? Well, either the, the right, remember the Catholicism, Catholicism teaches an infused righteousness, right? So he tried to rely on this infused righteousness, tried to rely on confession, penance. He did all of this stuff. And what did he keep finding? That he kept sinning over and over and over and over and over. Well, everybody else seemed to be okay. He was like, I, no, there's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem. So what solution did he say the Bible taught? That what we need is a foreign, remember he used the word foreigner, alien righteousness that is what? Imputed to us by faith. So here's a person, you're the same sinner you were. You're the same sinner. But now what's happened? You've been declared perfect even though you are not perfect because it's been accredited to your account. That's the, that's the distinguishing mark. But Christianity somewhere, even within the evangelical world, we've just returned to Roman Catholicism. Because it's all about, no, Jesus came to make us better. Jesus came to change. And, and, but the reality is, what do we see in your life, my life, and everyone's life? We're not better. And any better we have, it's, it, we play very subjective games, right? Well, I don't do this behavior but you're still doing all of these other... What's the standard that we're to judge ourselves by? Right, holiness, which is perfection. So no matter... So anything less than perfection is not better from from God's perspective. It may be better from a human perspective, but guess what? All religions can produce better from a human perspective, can they not? Mormonism can produce a better from a human perspective. Islam can. Roman Catholicism can. Alcoholics Anonymous can. Okay? Narcotics Anonymous can. Counseling can. There's all kinds of ways for self-improvement to make yourself, from a human perspective, better. But from God's perspective, his, the measurement is not, well, you stop doing this, you stop. No, his, he demands perfection. And in light of that perfection, what are we always 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Less than. And less than makes us what? Sinful. True? All right, so just keep that in mind because that's a key element in all of this. But now let's go to thesis number 10. Thesis number 10. I know we started it, but here we go. Thesis number 10. First, I'm going to read it from the book. 
because I want you to see if you can catch a la some language used here that's kind of startling that it's used, right? Then, after I read it from here, we'll, I'll give you the way I rewrote it, and then Sarah can give us the way she rewrote it, and then you can decide which way we want to go here, all right? Okay, because I bet hers is a little different than the way mine, or maybe she has it the same way. We'll see. All right, thesis number 10. Here we go. The word of God is not rightly divided. When the preacher describes faith in a manner as if the mere inert acceptance of truths, even while a person is living in, you ready for the phrase? Mortal sins. Now, the minute you hear that word, what, what should you think? What are they doing? Yeah, make a, a different classes of sin. Remember the, the Catholic system? How does the Catholic system work? Mortal and venial, right? There's certain requirements for a sin to be mortal, and then there's other things that will make it venial. What, and, and that system, what happens if you commit a mortal sin? You're no longer in a state of grace. You're no longer in a state of grace. That's a bad thing, okay? Okay? Well, you go through penance. There's a lot of things you have to do, right? But, I mean, at that moment, you're not in a state of grace, meaning you don't even go to purgatory. You don't even go to purgatory, right? That, that's hell, right? That's a serious thing. Venial sins weakens the grace. It weakens it because you are infused with grace in this system, right? It weakens it. But you're still within a state of grace, so you would go to where? Purgatory, where you could be, all that could be burned off, right? Now, we mock that all day long. We mock that all day long. But uh, trust me, that same system exists within the evangelical world just as much as they at least, have it, they at least identify it and have a system to rectify it. Within our culture, we don't want to identify it and we don't really have a system to rectify it, do, do we? Right? Basically, this is if you, if you, before salvation, if you come into the church, whatever you've done in the past is for the most part forgiven within the evangelical world, right? And that, that's an amazing feeling. But after you become a Christian, oh boy. Because there are certain sins you commit are basically considered mortal, and you're basically, you're finished. And, but there's thousands of others that you can commit are venial. They won't even get as much as, maybe, I don't even know if we're willing to even shrug our shoulders at it. It's just kind of like, who cares? So, this, so it's just interesting that they're using that phrase. Now, th this, I disagree with this thesis um, a lot. And right there tells you why I'm going to disagree with it. Because you can already see what they're setting up. So let's read this again. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in the manner as if mere inert acceptance of truths, even while a person is living in mortal sins, renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. So what are they, what are they concerned with in this thesis? What's the concern with in this thesis? There you go. That the people committing the big sins would be told, believe in Jesus and you're good to go while still living in the big sins. Now, that Christians have always been worried about this, right? Well, if, I, if you say that I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone, that could mean that I could believe in Jesus and still commit all of these sins and be saved. Now, but here's the thing. They know they have to draw a distinction, right? Why do they have to draw a distinction between mortal and venial? Why do you think they have to draw a distinction here? People are not going to stop totally. You know, they're going to continue to sin. So guess what? Everyone who believes in Jesus is going to continue to sin. So I can't say that if you believe in Jesus and you keep sinning, you're not saved because that, that's not going to work. So we've got to create a category. If you say you believe in Jesus and commit these sins then it, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Well, do you see, how, how do you work that, right? Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount seems to, 
seems to clearly indicate that even that not even committing the act, the mere desire for it, it makes you guilty of the act. So Jesus seems to destroy the mortal venial distinction, does he not? Yeah, in a sense, he makes the little sins the big sins. We can't process that, right? Why can we not process that? Why do we have so much trouble with that? Because we all commit those sins, right? We all commit those sins. We, we can make it look good, can we not? Okay, everyone knows who can make it. Anyone who's married knows what it's like, right? You're in the car driving to church and you're trying to kill each other. But you show up and walk into the church and then what do you do? How's everybody doing? Praise God. Things are great. Right? Come on. True? Now, if you walked in the church and started beating each other down, everybody would be like, oh! Inside, you've already killed the other person three times. Okay, maybe I'm the only person who's ever done that. Okay, right? Yes? Okay, Stephen's kind of like, kind of like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, okay, no. All right, okay. All right. Robert's by himself. He can say whatever. Okay. All right. Okay. But you get the idea, right? We can make it look good. So the thing is, is what this typically creates is, hey, look, if you believe in Jesus, don't be doing this bad stuff because you're not really saved. But in the reality, we're still all committing the bad stuff in some way, shape, or form. But we can't, the Christianity doesn't know how to process that. We seem broken, not like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Well, they're concerned that this is going to create a situation where the people committing the really bad sins are going to say they believe in Jesus and keep committing the sins. The only problem is, everyone who says they believe in Jesus keeps doing what? Committing sin. So why do we draw the distinction? Because we don't know how to process the reality of it. So they go on to say in the book, I'm going to go to the. So the word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith in a manner as if the mere inert acceptance of truths, even while a person is living a mortal sense, renders that person righteous in the sight of God and saves him. Or as if faith makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. Now, the last part seems to kind of flip it. Or, or as if faith might, makes a person righteous and saves him for the reason that it produces in him love and reformation of his mode of living. They try to balance it out and say, well, you can't turn around and say, well, the reason you're saved is because of what faith does in you. But at the same time, they're trying to say, you can't say that someone is saved if they're committing sin. So it's really a conflicted thesis. And I can understand that the... I can understand the struggle, but I bet you everyone here, I guarantee you, if someone claims to be saved, there are sins in your mind, you know it and I know it, that if they start committing those sins, we're going to be like, oh, I, just, I just don't know if they're saved. I just don't know if they're saved. Right? I mean, you know it, right? You've, you could probably make a list. Right? We could all grab a piece of paper right now and go... Well, if they continue to do this or continue to do this and continue to do this. And you would have your list. And you would be able to try to make a good argument for it. But guess what would not be on your list? (laughs) First of all, probably the sins that you commit. But there would be hundreds of these little, quote-unquote, smaller sins that you would not call into question. Right? Right? And how does it, why does it work that way? We, 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 it's like Christianity seems incapable of dealing with this reality. So, we re, I rewrote it this way in the thesis. The word of God is not rightly divided when the preacher describes faith as including obedience to the law. And the word of God is not rightly divided when faith is the thing that produces righteousness. How, how did you have it, Sarah? 
Okay. So we, we, both concepts are there, right? So what do we, in this thesis, what are the two things we're trying to avoid? Okay. Yeah, we cannot make faith law base. Say, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you got to keep the law, right? Or you didn't believe in Jesus. That's making it law based. Or you can't turn around and say that faith is the thing that makes you righteous because faith is the thing that, what, what's the right way to say it? By faith, we are not made righteous. By faith, we are declared righteous. Now, we're made, you can say we're made righteous positionally, but it's, we're declared. It's accredited to our account. Does that make sense? We've got to make sure we maintain both of these concepts. Now, we're going to go through the book and struggle with this, but the reason the book struggles is because everyone, I don't, even people writing books on law and gospel, they struggle with these issues. The reason most churches don't struggle with these issues is nobody wants to talk about these issues. I mean, I doubt you're going to find a lot of churches that spend 68 hours on the su- subject of law and gospel. Okay, yeah, go, go, please, go find one, okay? But you're, you're going to have a hard time. All right, because nobody wants to talk about these issues because they're complicated, but they have to be discussed because it comes down to the very essence of what Christianity is. Christianity is about being declared righteous because of what Christ did, not being made righteous in a practical way. Now, people say, so you're saying we shouldn't try to be righteous? I never said that, did I? I never said that. I'm saying that you can't come along and turn the gospel into something that it's not. Because the reality is, everyone who believes in Jesus will continue to do what? Sin. And they will continue to do, can sin until when? Until glorification. And what, what changes in glorification? A new body that's, that no longer has what? A sin nature. So no more sin. In the meantime, what do I still possess? A sinful body that still has a sinful nature. And guess what? All of my wrong action and all of my wrong thinking and all of my wrong feeling, where does it arise from? Inside of me, not outside of me. The problem is inside. The problem is not outside, right? We can build all the walls. We can cancel everything. We can, we can plug our ears, cover our eyes, and cover our mouth and think it's all great. The problem is inside. You can lock the doors, put metal across the windows, and protect yourself at all costs. The problem is inside you, and the problem is inside me. That's where the problem arises. This is what makes Christianity a radically different approach to human nature than any other, any other philosophy. Because most philosophy says that people are basically what? Good, and what creates the bad? The environment or something outside. But the issue is inside of us. Right now, let's see how the book handles this. I know that took 30 minutes to just work through that, but that's okay. All right. Oh, boy. At times, this is going to feel like we're getting pulled in two different directions, but we'll just try to work through this, all right? We, may, we kind of did a little bit of this the other night, but let's see how far we can get, all right? Are you ready? Here we go. Luther taught that those who would be saved must have a faith that produces love spontaneously and is fruitful in good works. Oh, man. Okay, let me read that one more time. All right. Luther taught that those who would be saved must have a faith that produces love spontaneously and is fruitful in good works. Now, the minute that they, they, they stop right there, because then there's a period. So they don't go into great detail and give context. But if you take that statement, what does that lead to? Let me read it again. Luther taught that those who would be saved must have a faith that produces love spontaneously and is fruitful in good works. Well, once again, what, what are you saved by? It's law-based. 
So even Luther struggled with this. Everybody wants to say, you're not saved unless you do these things. You're not saved unless you do these things. And why do you think even Luther had this problem? Because what are we naturally? We're law-based. We're law-based. We're law-based. We're law-based. We're law-based. Now, they're going to try to correct a little bit about what Luther meant. That does not mean that faith saves on account of the love which springs from it, but that the faith which the Holy Spirit creates and which cannot but do good works justifies because it clings to the gracious promises of Christ and because it lays hold of Christ. So they were like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. It doesn't mean that we're saved because of that. We're saved because of what Christ did. But, 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 a saving faith will do this. And then you know, you see the circle that goes into? You're not saved because of these works. But if you're saved, you will do these works. Therefore, if you don't have these works... That's, that's called circular reasoning. It's a logical fallacy, right? You're just going in a circle. And you think if we reword it that way, that somehow we've, we've accomplished something. I don't know what you think you've accomplished. Does everyone understand how that circle works, right? Yes? Can I, do, do, do I need to explain it like a hundred times? Right. Yeah, well, we, we try to say, well, we're not saved by doing this. That sounds good, right? What are we saved by? By grace through faith. But if I don't do these things, I'm not saved, which really means I have to do those things to be saved. You see, it, it, we play these little word games, and whenever you call the word games out, everyone loses their mind. But... You can't have it both ways. Either I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, or I'm saved somehow, in some way, as a result of what I do. Now, people say, well, it's not you doing it, it's Christ doing it through you. Well, then, then if Christ is doing it through me, you would hope he could get to perfection, don't you think? I would hope he could pull that off. Yes? And if he can't pull it off, then who gets the blame? He does, <laughs> exactly. So, like, that, that just creates a whole other list of problems. So, uh, it just, it's so maddening. But does everybody see the circle? Everybody understand that, right? Got it? Because, like, if you were to confront MacArthur, what would MacArthur say? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. But... If that faith remains alone, then you're not saved. So therefore, I have to do these things in order to be saved. So, like, it's just, I don't know how, why Christians can't realize that's what we're doing, but we're just talking in circles. Okay, no, okay, no, good. Okay, that's, I was hoping someone would kind of go this direction. Yes, they would claim it's an evidence. But the problem with making something an evidence is the evidence then becomes a requirement. Do you see? That's how the circle works, right? Hey, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We're not saved by works. And everybody says, amen. However, you must have these works in order to prove that you are saved. Well, the minute I say that, What's still required? The works. So in other words, it comes into a circle. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Now we have to understand what, that, what does that mean. So we would typically interpret that to mean no salvation, or it can just mean that that faith is not producing anything, right? It's just like, you know, because uh, James uses the same, I mean, we, we can get in a whole discussion about James, but you can get into this discussion where James tries to use this argument that if someone comes in, right, if one of the teenagers is like, hey, I'm dying of starvation, and I'm like, well, you know, God bless you, I'll, I'll pray for you, good luck. My faith is dead that it did not do anything for them. That doesn't mean 
that it's not, that, that we, like we, some people will argue, well, that will prove that you're never saved. Well, then the only problem is, well, then how much works do I have to do in order to prove that I'm saved? And then not only that, now those works become a requirement in order to be saved. And then not only that, if the works are the things that proves that I'm saved, then what about, then uh, guess what no longer matters? The imputed righteousness, now what do I have to look to? Infused righteousness, right. And there's no question, there's plenty of scriptures that seem to, like First John, everyone says it's a test book. But I think you have to look at those books and try to understand exactly what's going on. What First John is trying to do is show a polemic against Gnosticism, saying don't be like the Gnostics, don't be like the Gnostics. James, I think it's looking at justification in a completely different way, because James says you're not justified by faith alone. Well, then what in the world is James talking about? It's got to be talking about a different kind of justification, maybe an outward justification. Like, like there's all kinds of other issues we'd have to get into. But no matter how we word it, we walk our way, ourself right back into saying basically what a Catholic would say. Right? Your faith should produce works, and if you don't have the works, you're no longer in a state of grace. We wouldn't say you're no longer in a state of grace. We would say you were never in a state of grace which then requires the works. And the pr- problem is, if, my, if I look to my works to prove I'm saved, what, what, should, what should be the requirement for those works? They'd have to be perfect, right? They would have to be perfect, personal, exact, entire, and perpetual. Well, are, are any of your works ever going to be that? So then what do you have to do? Even if you take MacArthur's test, he has an 11-point test. Jonathan Edwards had a 14-point test. All of their tests, and we've covered them here, what do they always say? For example, MacArthur will say, if you're you're saved, you will love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. So immediately, what should you say? Well, then I'm not saved. Then MacArthur says, but, 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 it won't be perfect. Well, then how can an imperfect love be the standard to prove my salvation? My, my hope in salvation can't be my love for God. My, perfect, my hope in salvation have to be that Christ loved the Father perfectly and his obedience is imputed to me, me by faith. So there are those te- all those tests that are in Scripture are only passed by whom? Christ. It's like the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Sermon on the Mount... I mean, what's the test Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount? Be ye perfect as, I'm per- as my heavenly Father is perfect. Well, guess what? Does anyone pass that test? No. So the Sermon on the Mount, would, what should be the c- conclusion when someone reads Matthew 5 through 7? I'm not saved. So how do I pass the test of the Sermon on the Mount? The one who preached it kept it. And his keeping it is now given to That's the only way to work. I do believe the Bible says, do this, do this, do this, do this. That's law, law, law. Who's the one who obeyed the law? Christ. That is imputed to me. Should I, now am I saying I don't have to worry about it? No, we have to pursue it and seek it. But the reality is no matter how much I do of it, guess what's always going to be true of me? I'm going to fail in some way, shape, or form. Either in thought, word, or deed. I mean, that's just the reality. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it's just the reality. All right, I hope that makes sense. We can, we can circle back around to more of that and look at some, And at some point, we will work through all the passages that have uh, all, of, that creates all of these issues. All right, um, it says, okay, so we've looked at all of that. It is active in good works because it is genuine faith. Now, once again, now they're coming right back to it. They're going to circle, right? See, the book is going to have the same struggle, right? Hey, if your faith is genuine, what will it do? It'll be active in good works. But see, that's, how do you, that, that just, that, that creates so many problems. Because how do, you, how do you judge that, right? The believer need not at all be exhorted to do good works. His faith does them automatically. That sounds good, doesn't it? Hey, your faith will just do good works automatically. I don't know. How long have you been saved? I've been saved a while. I don't think my faith just automatically does good works. 
And for every good work supposedly it does automatically, it seems to be broken in some other areas. <laughs> well, there's something still working against me. There's no question about it. But see, you, what does that create the image of? You're saved. Your faith just does good works automatically. Well, if my faith just does good works automatically, then what should be expected? Pretty close near perfection, right? I mean, it should be just near perfection. And I and look... If the parent, if any, if, if any of the parents want to kind of push back, I would be like, that's okay. Let's just look at the life of any teenager who makes a profession of faith. Does automatic obedience just come flowing from them? No, no everybody's like, well, let's not talk about teenagers. Well, guess what? It, same thing is happening in you. Yes. Just maybe it just manifests itself. What? In a different way. That's always the issue. It manifests itself in a different way. I mean, someone who's 80 in a rest home, right, are not going to be having the same sin issues as someone who's 18 on a Friday night, right? Does that mean the 180 is somehow their faith is doing automatic good works and the one who's 18 is not? It's that, like it's so unfair the way we do that. There's going to be different struggles and different issues, but we all are going to have what in our life? Sin. Well, why would there be sin if my faith is automatically doing good works? Where's the sin coming from? You see the issue? It says, uh, the believer engages in good works, but not from a sense of duty and return for the forgiveness of his sins, but chiefly because he cannot help doing them. Now, I do agree what we should be motivated by is gratitude, and we're grateful for what God has done for us. But they go on to say, you can't help but do them. Like, you can't stop yourself. I, I, I'm going to say that. I, I can say that all the time. The, I mean, we, we can just go to some basic ones, right? That, hey, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. As a newborn babe, sincerely desire the milk of God's word that you may grow thereby. You should desire God's word more than gold and silver, more than honey in the honeycomb. You should study to show yourself approved. You should be hiding God's word in your heart. You should be memorizing it, reading it, and studying it, and loving God's word. How much time did you spend studying and loving and memorizing God's word this week? It should be automatic. So everybody gets quiet on that one. Now, see, that's the one I used to run to. Because I'd be like, see, I got that down. I got no problem with that one. It would be other ones I'd be like, well, you know. But see, just that one, if God, you think if faith just automatically produces that, Christians should be the most committed to the scriptures. They read it, they study it, they memorize it, they talk about it, they love it. They, they would prefer this over doing anything else on a Friday night. They would prefer this over anything else. They wouldn't even have any entertainment in their home because all they would care about is the scriptures. Every study that comes out says Christians barely read their Bible, they barely study their Bible. You can't get them to read it, you can't get them to study, you can't get them to do anything. Bible reading, all-time lows, Bible study, pastors, ministries everywhere have struggled with. Well, how do we get people, why do we have to try? Remember what they said in the book? You don't have to force a Christian to do good works. They just do it. Well, then guess what? I shouldn't even have to mention the scriptures. That's all you should be talking about. Immediately, what does that demonstrate? That you love what? You love other things more than you love God's word. Amen or oh me. Why does that happen? Because Sarah said it. Faith, for some reason, seems to have a hard time. How did you say it? Motivating me to even do it, right? I'm not motivated to do it. Why are you not motivated to do it? You, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You should just do it. Now, that's a romanticized version of Christianity that we create, right? That that, I wish it was that way, don't you? I got saved and like, I can't but, I can't but 
but do the good thing. I, I can't help myself. All I can do, I, I keep trying to do the bad thing, but I can't do the bad thing. I can't, I can't love what I want to love. I can only love what God loves. I, I have to hate what God hates. I, can only, I can't stop myself. It's almost like I'm a robot. It doesn't work that way, does it? Usually I'm like, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to read my Bible. And I sure not worth forgiving that person. And that person who just cut me off in traffic, I wish they would die and their family. Okay? Oh, come on. Don't, don't act like you're all sanctimonious, okay? Okay. All right, okay. All right. All right. Come on. You got your own issues. Right? The church is just made up of a bunch of sinners who are not usually highly motivated in ways that we want to pretend that we are. True? I mean, sometimes I see y'all walk through the door and I'm like, well, they clearly don't want to be here this morning. Right? Sometimes people walk through the door and like, oh, uh, something's going on in that marriage. Okay. I'm just going to stand over here. I'm not going to ask them how they're doing because obviously it's not well. Sometimes you can see the kids walk in and you're like, whoa, someone, ha- I bet you that car ride here wasn't fun. Okay? Oh, come on. It's true. One time me and Stacy got in a fight going to church. We ended up in the runs of parking lot in Nebraska yelling and screaming at each other and didn't even make it to church because she wouldn't stop arguing. Okay? Oh, come on. That's never happened to anybody else? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Robert's like, I just turned around and went back home. Or I said, get out of the car, Janice. You stay here, okay? I'm going to church, okay? That's why Robert's here by himself this morning. Janice is somewhere in the highway, okay? But that, that's the reality of it. I wish it was just like get saved and naturally want to do it. But it's get saved. I do believe there's a desire there. Don't you? I do believe. I don't believe Christians are like, I don't want to ever do anything. I do believe there's a desire. Because we, to become a Christian, we've changed our mind about God and sin. Yes. Hopefully we're eternally grateful that he died for me. And so I do want to do what's right. But guess what I have a tendency to do? To do what's right. The things I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Which is why we Christians find themselves in a lot of times living with guilt. Because we constantly mess up. They, he, they're trying to create a version that you just can't help but do good. Well, I, I, I don't believe that's true. 2,000 years of church history, what has the church been filled with? Sin. Lots of it. Right? I mean, read, read Corinthians. Read, if you want to uh, go to church history, go to the Apostolic Fathers, uh, Clement, Uh, In his first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote to the Corinthians. He wrote to the Corinthians somewhere between 50 and 70 A.D. Almost everyone believes it's before 70 A.D. Clement wrote to the Corinthians. And it's the most bizarre thing. One paragraph, he's like, you guys have believed in Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. You love one another. You're doing all this. And you're like, whoa, man, the church of Corinth was doing great. The very next paragraph is basically like, you people hate God. You won't even follow his commandments. And you're like, what just happened? Well, Paul, when he writes the Corinthians, does he not have the same issue? So that's the same church being spoken of by Paul and Clement, an early church father. And guess what? The church was a... I wonder why. What did Paul... What did, everyone look at 1 Corinthians 3, just really quick. Just look at it really quick. We, should, we all know it. I know we didn't get far on this one, but that's okay. Everybody look at it for themselves. I don't, I don't even want to read it. How does Paul describe the people at Corinth? What are some of the words he uses to describe them? Okay. Do what? He refers to them as brethren. Okay, there's the first time seeming to imply that they're Christians. Next. I can't speak to you as spiritual. I can't even refer to you as spiritual, but carnal. What does carnal mean? Fleshly, worldly, right? 
He refers to them as babes in Christ, meaning that they are saved. He didn't say your carnality proves you're not saved, does he? The carnality did not prove they weren't saved. Because what proves their salvation? The finished work of Jesus Christ is what proves your salvation, not your actions. Now, I had to write write a paper in school trying to show that these people weren't actually saved. Because I went to multiple schools that said, no, there are no carnal Christians. That's a MacArthur concept. There's no carnal Christians. In fact, I think I have the commentary they had to use in one school. I'll have to bring it. There's a whole uh, uh, addendum in the, in the commentary about there are no carnal Christians. There are no carnal... And then try to go all this way to prove these people are, sa- are lost. These people are lost. These people are lost. They were never saved. What does Paul say about the judgment where all, when all of your works are burned up? That all your works can be burned up and yet you will be saved. How is that possible? Because my salvation is not based on what I do. Yeah. They're going to, but they're still going to escape. Why are they going to escape? Because salvation is based off what Christ did, had accomplished. All right, let me just read this next part, see if we can get this next part in. I wanted to finish this whole one, but that's okay. You know, Okay. Okay, (laughs) that's fine. At least Janice is listening, okay? (laughs) And she's not on the side of the highway, okay? All right, Robert, see, you're doing pretty good. You didn't drop your wife off on the side of the road, okay? (laughs) All right, all right. Uh, Here we go. It says, the believer engages in good works, not from a sense of duty uh, and uh, and return for the forgiveness of his sins, but chiefly because he cannot help doing them. Once again, the idea is that What? We have to do them. It is altogether impossible that genuine faith should not break forth from the believer's heart and works of love. I wish that was the case, but guess what? 1 Corinthians 3. What's the problem? Because according to this, what should be happening? They should not be able to stop themselves from doing good. Should just be genuinely break. Well, what's going on with them in 1 Corinthians? You know what's going on with them in 1 Corinthians? The same thing that's wrong with us. And what's wrong with us? Sin nature. As long as that exists, what's going to always be an issue? Sin. I wish wish this was true. Sometimes when I I try to teach this, I think people, they think that I'm trying to make an, an excuse. I'm not trying to make an excuse. I'm trying to deal with the reality. I'm trying to deal with the reality. And I'm trying to show you the problem with the, with the circular argument, right? So I'll end with this. We love to say that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, apart from works, so that no man can boast. Everybody would say, amen. So, but then we come along and say, however, if you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, right? You will do these works, because if you don't do these works... You were never saved. You've just now said that you are saved by these works. There's just no way to get around it. You're just talking in circles. I know we don't want that to be, we want to say, well, there's got to be an evidence. There's got to be an evidence. And like say, give me, say there's all this evidence. And I will say, yes, there's all this evidence. And the only way I fulfill that evidence is according to whom? It's according to Christ. Again, the Sermon on the Mount. Most people preach the Sermon on the Mount that that's a test to prove your salvation. Nobody fulfills the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demands perfection. I don't know how preachers can't see that. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be ye perfect, (laughs) that's a clue, right? That's a clue. Every good Bible student should go, "Uh, how do we do this? How do we do this? Romans chapter 4. Why was was Abraham declared to be righteous? Because of what he did? By faith. So guess what? The Sermon on the Mount, I I obey the Sermon on the Mount perfectly in Christ. So the Christian life is the impossible task of trying to live out practically what is true 
positionally. Should we try? Should we desire? Do we fight and struggle? But what's the one thing that's going to be guaranteed? Well, that we're going to fail. That's the one guarantee, and that Christ did it for us, yes. And, and people have a hard time, rec- they, I know we're like, but, but someone will then just live a life of sin and say they're saved. But here's the reality. We're all living a life of sin. Yes? So you can't say, well, no, they're living their life of sin. They're not saved, but I'm living my life of sin. So then you have to create different categories of sin. Which then goes back to the mortal, venial concept. Because you may not be living the life of sin that I'm living, but trust me, you're living it. I wish it was different. And I know that most Christians would argue otherwise, but they can argue all day. Jesus didn't come to make me better practically. He came to make me holy by an imputed righteousness. And from that, yes, I do believe that when I change my mind about sin and about God, there there should be some changes in my life. I do believe there should be, but I can't base my salvation off that because those changes will never be adequate enough to prove it. Does that make sense? I wish there was, but it's not. But we're going to have to stop. All right, Lord God, we come before you this morning. A very complicated situation, a complicated study. I hope we would give this much thought. And the main thing is just be open and honest with ourselves and open and honest that you demand perfection. And no matter what evidence we supposedly have in our life, that evidence would lead me to conclude that I'm not saved because it would never meet your standard. But we thank you for Jesus, who in him, we meet all the standards. That is our only hope, and I hope we realize that. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...